0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Michael DiMano, who is a serial entrepreneur who has co-founded commercial developments, restaurants, private investigation companies, organic soap companies, but now he's the CEO and founder of Samuel Hale, one of 70 companies in California approved for alternative dispute resolutions thanks to his wealth of expertise. Michael was also chosen as one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the Sacramento's journal, 40 Under 40. On today's show, we talk about how do you balance hiring for growth and efficiency of capital? What is PEO service? What are some suggestions for companies out there as a plan for the potential growth of their company? What is the current dispute resolution process? Why is the workers' comp system broken? And much more. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. I'm excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. First off, I want to thank Angela who made the introduction that allowed today's episode to take place. So Angela, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for being a good friend and thank you for allowing this to happen. And with that, Michael, I got a lot of questions for you. Your background, you've done quite a number of things. So with that, could you tell our audience a little bit about your career up until this point before we dive deep into a lot of what you've accomplished?
1: Sure thing. Well, people describe me as an entrepreneur with ADD and that is someone who can't walk past something that's broke and not try and fix it and come from a family of entrepreneurs from both sides of the family, own their own businesses. And so I grew up in family businesses. And we came out to California to help my dad in the pizza business. And about a year into it, once things were going well, I said, dad, I got, I need to go out and earn a living and wanted to make my own steak. And so he suggested I go into insurance and said, do you know what it's like to sit on this side of the table? And insurance guy is important, but." I never, they take 13% of my gross. I really never know what they're talking about. So he said, if you can be strategic and be in that kind of line of work, you'll do well. And so most of my, I've done quite a few different things, but made most of my money in creating unique solutions in the insurance space.
0: A lot of questions, but one, why not kind of follow the pizza restaurant and open up another restaurant? Why insurance and also in my mind, insurance is not something that's creative. How did you go about coming up with solutions for it? I know there's a lot of questions there, so I'm not sure where you want to start,
1: but. Yeah, I think the restaurant business, my dad just loved it and I didn't. (laughs) It wasn't dynamic enough. He enjoyed every single meal, making it special for the folks that he served. And for me, I wanted to do something that was more impactful, something that was a little broader. And believe it or not, insurance is 13% of the GDP. So it's a huge sector and there's a lot of mediocrity in insurance. And the best way I can describe that is you can ask a hundred of your friends, not one of them will tell you, I went to school to be in insurance. That's something you back into and because it's really easy to make a $200,000 income, it doesn't breed ingenuity. It doesn't breed people who are trying to get to the next level, that kind of thing. That's what I enjoy doing. So it was this big space where there were tons of problems. Not a lot of people are happy with insurance. Most don't trust insurance company. And so it was an opportunity for me to meet with hundreds if not thousands of business owners and try and understand their business and see how I could make insurance a strategic part of that. And that's really what led me down that road. My first insurance business was handling employee benefits. And I started that business in 1992. That was an interesting year to start an insurance practice because Hillary had the nationalized healthcare on the ballot, California had a single payer initiative. And every insurance company I met with said, why are you starting an insurance agency right now? But we found that, especially with healthcare and the age of HMOs, there was a lot of unhappiness. And one of the funny examples I remember is like when the, you'd go in and put in someone's employee benefit plans and then the carrier would take Prozac off the formulary. <laughs> you get hundred people calling in and are pretty upset with you. So what we did is we found that... Customers bought from their friends, from guys who were at their country club or they went to college with, and the product and the price was exactly the same. So our business model was to try and figure out how to get friends fired, which was not easy. But we discovered that because there was so much dissatisfaction, we created a call center and clients and their employees could call in to us and we would handle all of the interactions with the carrier. So we would say, look, how much are you going to invest in benefits this year? And they'd say $300,000. i would say, that's funny because I can save you 300000 And they'd say, how are you going to do that? And I'd say, let's just get rid of it. And at that time, insurance wasn't required. And I said, how many $300,000 decisions are you going to make this year? And an employer would often say, I'm not making any. And I'd say, well, you're making one right now. So what is it that you're buying? And we quickly get them to admit that they're buying the goodwill of their employees. And I'd say, well, how's that going for you? And we would call the 800 number on the back of their card and listen to the girl from Iwo Jima on the the old music. And so we'd say, if you, instead of that experience, you can call our office and we date and timestamp every call and also all the service elements that we did. And it worked amazingly well. We developed 700 commercial clients over Five years with that value prop and sold it to Wells Fargo in 1998.
0: So, right there, just having a US based call center and the customer service was the differentiator that allowed you to scale a company from nothing in a tough time to a successful exit. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. What were some of the takeaways you took from that that you then parlayed into your other ventures that followed?
1: Well, one of the biggest ones, and this is something that I learned from my dad, by the way, and coming from Detroit. Was to take a difficult process and break it down into its parts and build a a team to accomplish the goal of what one person would normally do. And that allowed us to scale. That allowed us to have volume and a consistency of service. And most of the guys in in the industry, was there's about eight guys that controlled all of the Sacramento area where we're at. And they would they weren't super happy about a young kid in his twenties coming taking their accounts.
0: I was gonna say you got a pretty good smile as you're <laughs> saying this story.
1: <laughs> well, they had they had the newspaper came out and interviewed me and asked me like some of the same questions you are. And I was talking about my dad's restaurant business and the article of the newspaper said fast food guy puts or insurance guy puts fast food lessons to work or whatever. And for about the next six months, every time I picked up the phone, someone would say I'd like an order of fries with my, uh, my HMO, that kind of thing. So that gave me a hard time.
0: Hey, at least got the word out there. Yes, it did. Oh yeah. So after that you sold the company, took time off, traveled for a year or two, or what happened after that?
1: No, I went right to work for the bank and that was an experience because I, prior to that, I did everything. I emptied the trash. I did the, the financials, hired everybody, trained them. And when you go from that environment to being an executive at the bank where you have no authority and you pretty much are wearing a beautiful suit and all that stuff, but not a lot of ingenuity. There were all of the stuff that got me to where I was no longer, I was no longer able to do. I lasted about a year and a half and then decided it was time to move on.
0: Okay. And then after that started another company?
1: Yeah. When I got there, they were, I was kind of known as a fixer, someone who could come in and fix difficult problems. And that's the first time I came into touch with the PEO industry. Wells had a big PEO.
0: For the, the audience, the, the acronym PEO, can you explain that a little bit?
1: Sure. It stands for professional employer organization. And PEOs sort of started in the 80s for doctor's offices and things like that, doing back office services, dating insurance for better pricing, that kind of thing. And it's evolved quite a bit. And now is a very significant part of the handles back office for a significant number of businesses, but mostly smaller businesses. They consolidate the HR and technology and to a certain extent, health insurance and also workers' comp. But the insurance side, the efficiencies have been taken out by the internet and technology and that kind of thing. So that's the basic background of PEOs. Okay. So
0: PEO, you came in, you now have the title as fixer, shaking things up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So go on.
1: Yeah. The practice at the time where they were looking for healthcare solutions, they wanted to consolidate healthcare. And since that was my background, that's what I did. And quickly saw these amazing businesses because essentially what they do is here in California, it's known as a litigious place for businesses, a very unfair marketplace. And These companies were attempting to do all the stuff that a normal business would have to do, but at a lower price with tons and tons of liability. So there was always something broke, something new, a business with a different type of challenge that the PEO hadn't experienced before. That got me into the industry and then sold off that one and went back into insurance doing workers' comp, PPA, managed care business. And that was in the era of 2003. And what was significant about that is we had a collapse of the workers' comp market and we lost all the monoline carriers except state fund. And state fund, as you probably know, is the market of last resort. And it was so bad that they had 65% market share. And so we started building solutions for employers out of that business.
0: Okay. And then the business before this current one, the one that's, well, once again, you're in the newspaper and all these awards, or if it says the pizza now, but <laughs> the company, the prior one, what happened there that gave you the idea for what you're kind of working on now?
1: Yeah. So I had a, 2009 was a tough year for me. I mean, I lost a lot of money in the market and real estate and so on. So I went back to a business that I wasn't particularly fond of, but I knew how to do it well. And that, that's temporary staffing. And so uh, me and a couple guys started a company called V-Force and we did light industrial temp staffing, but my partner was a disabled veteran. And so we attempted to get government contracts and the business rolled along nicely until about 2015. So we started in 2011, 2015, we got really taken to the cleaners by some attorneys down in LA. We bought a small business down there and We had enough fraudulent claims in the three-month period to increase our XMOD over 100 points. And the net result of that was $2.5 million more premium that I had paid the year before. But I wasn't making $2.5 million. So (laughs) that posed an interesting challenge. And I went back to something that I learned back in the intercare days when I was running the TPA. They had just passed reform, Schwarzenegger dig in 2004. And they made this labor code that allow you to navigate the legal system where a lot of the costs were being generated. Workers' comp is a no-fault insurance. The employer's always at fault. The idea behind that is to not have fights, not have litigation. But in California, we have an unregulated judicial board called the WCAB, and attorneys use that as a way of increasing the, I mean, they don't intend to increase the cost, but they do quite a bit. So while going back to your question before I get ahead of myself, so we started a business alongside of V-Force called Samuel Hale, and we were approved for this labor code that I was describing. And just as an idea, we knew how much money we thought it would save. But we didn't really think about the business itself, how we were going to do it. But we got it going 2017. I think it's a very different product. And so our only customers the first year were people who were going out of business and this was their only choice. And, but it worked. We save about 75 cents on the claims dollar by utilizing alternative dispute resolution instead of the court system. And there's only about 70 companies in the state that have that. And they're all large municipalities in Fortune 500 companies. So we figured out how to obtain that and we share it through, share it with our customers, the protection that we have through a co employment or a contract with our customer where we divide up the employment responsibilities. Very similar to a PEO, we call ourselves an ECO, Employer Carve Out Organization since that is the efficiency that we share with our customers. I
0: think most of our audience, if they had a blackboard and was going through it, could follow there. (laughs) Is there a way to make it a little bit simpler for us?
1: Yeah. One of the fastest growing parts of our economy is lower wage, high turnover jobs. Technology and just the growth of everything that we can order over the Internet has created all these jobs. Those jobs where people might work less than a year, and make less than, say, $50,000, that, for whatever reason, that breeds a lot of fraud and unnecessary litigation in the workers' comp claims. That increases the price five to ten times more than what you might pay in Arizona, Oregon, or Nevada for exactly the same thing. So the benefits don't change, but the litigation costs drive more than 50 to sometimes 75% of the cost of the claim. In doing that, we're able to eight, say, 75% of that cost, and that generates a lower premium dollar. And for a lot of our customers, not just the lower premium dollar, but stability. When you're running a business and you don't know if your rates are going to double like mine did, it's tough to budget. It's tough to plan. We meet a lot of customers who've had to not buy capital equipment that they were planning on because of workers' comp. They develop adverse relationships with their employees, and that can end up costing you in in a lot of different ways. And so we give them stability and we change the relationship that they have with their employees. And that ends up being a much more productive for our customers. Back to you know what my dad was saying, you know what it's like to sit on this side of the table and struggle. I found that advice of being able to talk to them and say, look, I'm going to take care of you. Let's talk about your business. What are you going to do with all this extra money? How are you going to grow it? If you had that extra 100000 this year, what additional equipment would you buy? Or where would you grow? Or maybe just buy a summer home. Who knows? And then
0: you got the award for Inc. 5,000 fastest growing companies. Yeah. Can you talk about that award? What are some of the perks that come with it? There's an awful lot of companies that strive
1: for it, but you got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to give credit to my employees, my staff. What we sell is a concept in a commodity-driven business, And so when we were learning how to do that in the beginning, the sales were slower. When we started growing and insurance brokers like Angelo, who introduced us, when they became more aware of it, they started coming to their customers. And one by one, we started getting some momentum. What Inc. did is put it out there to let everybody know, hey, it's okay. Like there's a lot of people that are trying this and it's been great. I mean, the Inc. 5000 was validation for a business model that was really new, really different. And it's accelerated every year since we've got that first award.
0: That's interesting. I mean, that does give kind of credibility to it. I wonder how many startups out there, early stage companies, are not leveraging news articles or leveraging Forbes or these brands the way they could to yeah. kind of take away some of that doubt from potential clients.
1: Yeah, I think it's funny because there are different type of business owners, right? We meet some that are a generational like me. They have a very different mindset. There are some entrepreneurs who, like me, just can't walk past something that's broke and not try and fix it. And they're thirsty for information. I find that those people are open to new ideas and things. And then there's some that are just driven solely on the numbers on the page. Those can be a little bit tougher because we're always projecting forward in the savings, not just what we're saving this year, but the fact that we can save them money for three or four years into the future. And the reason for that, I should probably explain, a workers' comp claim affects you more so three or four years going forward than it does this year. Why is that? Because the so one of the things that makes workers' comp so incredibly difficult is you have tail of liability that goes out twenty years. So when the insurance carrier, when they're deciding how much premium that they're gonna charge you, they're looking long term and guessing in their favor, right? The uh and I'm sorry, you you're gonna have to go back to your original question. I was I was lost in the
0: Oh, it was a very intellectual, deep question. It's one of those things you can't repeat. (laughs) Okay.
1: Yeah. I think you're asking like, why is it so tough, right? Yeah. So because the tail is so long, the potential liability, you could charge someone $500 in premium and incur a $14 million claim. So the whole system is built on statistics and they take your class code, your risk code, if you will, for the industry you're in, and they're essentially always comparing you to the average. So, one of the things that you might find this interesting, when we were trying to explain our theory, our financial model to an underwriter, he said, Oh, you guys are just like Moneyball. We found a unique statistic that was really undervalued, and we figure out a way to capitalize it. And we compete against people who don't have that understanding or way to capitalize. For
0: a on. moment, I was thinking
1: Powerball there. No, right. Billy Bean, Oakland, right in this neighborhood here, not too far. So,
0: Before continuing with your current company, it sounds like every company you've ever worked on was a success from beginning to end. Were there any troubles or difficulties with any of those that maybe you could share with our sure. audience? Because I mean, one thing about Silicon Valley and the startups, yeah, you hear about those unicorn companies, but you don't hear about the red ocean to get right. there.
1: Yeah. Well, I've done a lot of things outside of the insurance space. One of the businesses that I helped develop is I met a guy who owned the patent to trade tickets electronically in the secondary market. And you know how you, when you swipe your card and you get a ticket at the airport, we own that for sports and entertainment. So the practical application of that was if you were, let's say, the Oakland A's, you could adopt this as your ticketing and every trade that someone made would be done electronically and the Oakland A's would have their own essentially, like New York stock exchange for their tickets. So it allowed them to make a commission every time a ticket was traded. Now they have some similar but not absolute models, right? But this model eliminated eBay and it eliminated scalpers and all that type of stuff. And we had a meeting with baseball and baseball at that time traded a hundred million tickets a year. And I was the financier and CEO of the company and my partner had the patent and he was a little bit of an eccentric fellow. He'd already made and lost like 40 million by the time he was thirty-three. So when we went into the meeting, he demanded like a $10 million fee plus 50% of the trade value of all, all the tickets. And the guy who represented baseball just kind of ignored the offer. And he kept talking and said, look, I'm very interested. This is obviously something that would benefit us dramatically. But, you know, you need to go back and think about that. So we had a second meeting and we reduced it a little bit, but he wouldn't listen to me. I said, let's just take 50 cents, not 50%, 50 cents a trade. That's $50 million a year for a couple of young punks. We would have been billionaires because the guy by the third meeting, he he said, if I want your patent, I'll just take it. And my partners are where money stops in the world. And so we blew what was probably one of the biggest opportunities in my lifetime and We ended up selling the whole thing for about 4 million bucks to the guys who own the Cleveland Cavaliers. So it's still around today. It's called Flash Seats. Oh, man. It was almost. But yeah, I've had plenty of other deals that didn't work out. Generally speaking, I'm a salesperson as well. I love getting in and talking to the customers about what's going on in their business. So a lot of times I might start something, but never really put a lot of money into it because I figure out early that it doesn't work. When you're sitting in front of the client, you can see it in their eyes. You can see the whether it's generating the kind of excitement that you hope for. And so most of our businesses that have been successful have just grown out of that. Plenty of ones, by the way, that names that we formed LLCs on and just kind of went by the wayside. The other thing that didn't really work out for me is I took a lot of my earnings out of the first sale. And I was a dotcomer. I was on the board of a lot of dot coms and yeah, a lot of, I would say 85% of those deals went to zero. So.
0: Well, talk about that. Cause yeah. if you're on the board of many of these, you're inside Dot goes public. You got nice six months later exit. Yeah. What happened there? I mean, was it just caught up in the hype or.
1: I think everybody was dot at everything. And some of them were great ideas. Some of them were. You really sort of understand the importance of execution and timing and having the right partners. We had one called the Electronic Freight Exchange, and this guy who built this was a super smart guy. He had built the logistics systems for like Nike and uh, General Motors and things like that. So now he was going to dot-com it, and everybody thought, there's no way this can fail. But he was not a good salesman. And like, if you were the guy handling my shipping and stuff like that, I'm probably giving you tickets to the game. We we know our kids know each other, that kind of thing. He underestimated the strength of relationships and became very frustrated with the fact that the world didn't understand his genius as, as quickly as he had hoped. So I got a chance to see a lot of it from a different perspective.
0: How important do you think it is for early stage companies to focus on relationship building? First, maybe tech or fundraising or everything else you hear about people, their pitch deck, they'll spend hundreds of hours on. But at the same time, they might not spend hundreds of hours sitting down for coffee with all these people.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think people become lost in the lab, if you will. They start building something. They start thinking about all of the upside and they lose track of people. And I tell my sons this who are both in the business with me, be humble and listen genuinely listen to people and ask them about their, what's going on in their world. And it takes time for people to really warm up to you, but people will give you this valuable advice that they paid for it with blood, sweat, tears, money, marriages, all that kind of thing. And if you just open and, and listen to them and, and genuinely care about them, I think that's the thing that can be tough when you're a CEO and you're, Your business is on the rise. It's easy to forget that we're just, this is just a means to an end. With all the companies that you've started, and
0: it sounds like there was that one example where the co-founder was maybe not the right one. What advice do you have for someone picking a co-founder or Mm. would you recommend go solo on everything?
1: It depends. Some people just are not meant for partners and they can be great business owners and do well and all that stuff. The majority of people are going to rely on others. It helps to know yourself first because the relationship, there's things that you cannot control about the relationship. But if you understand yourself and you understand the strengths and weaknesses of your partners and, you know, it works for you and you can accept that, then, you know, it can lead to a very successful partnership. The other thing is being very clear up front, you know, what the relationship is and what it is not and your ultimate goals. So you see a lot of people, partnerships where one partner loves the business and the other one loves the money. And that can oftentimes lead to challenges. There's another system that we use to help manage our company called EOS. It's the Entrepreneur Operating System. I don't know if you shaking
0: your head so you've heard of that one. So the author that I've been trying to get him on the show for a
1: while. Gino Wickman. Yeah, I'll see if I can throw in a good word. A good friend of mine's pretty high up there with the teachers and stuff. That'd but, be
0: fantastic. Then that yeah. intro the episode, I'd have to go. I'd like to thank Michael for setting up the intro for this oh, episode.
1: Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to hear that. But they talk a lot about the difference between a visionary and an integrator and a visionary who is 50,000 feet up and always full of excitement and love relationships, love sales, love marketing, and then the integrator who's process-oriented. Very rarely do you find somebody that is both. Sometimes that's the case, but the greatest partnerships are where a visionary and an integrator work together, and the integrator make sure that the business is operating in such a way that they'll hit their goals and pay their investors back and all that stuff and allow the visionary that space to create and to come up with new products, new services, build big relationships with vendors and customers and things like that.
0: Thinking of two things at once right now at Silicon Valley and a lot of places, there's that thought of growth and efficiency for companies. With all the companies you've built in that, how have you gone about thinking, okay, do I put a ton of rocket fuel and just grow this? Or, hey, I have to manage the cash flow and let's do this a little bit slower, but more efficient. How are you going about
1: That's a phenomenal question. And this last downtick in the market that happened about the middle of last year, if you weren't making money, whether you're publicly traded or not, this market affected you adversely. I have a good friend who's a CEO of a multi-billion dollar biotech company and stocks trade in the 140, 150 range, and for no reason other than, and they plan to not make money and they have a billion dollars of cash in the bank, but the value of the stock dropped because the market stopped favoring out of control growth. I shouldn't say out of control, they wanted profitability over growth. And I've always had lots of customers in the Bay Area, a lot of technology customers, and some of them, they'd hear about our business, oh, that's so great. How much money are you losing? And I'm like, well, we're not losing any. And they look at me like I'm out of my mind. I go back and talk to my dad and say, should I be losing money? He's like, why would you want to lose money? (laughs) Different philosophy, right? I grew up in family businesses where they watched every penny. I was never comfortable taking a bunch of money and flushing it for the sake of growth. And it's maybe held me back in some circumstances, but it's also most of the businesses allowed them to keep going without taking on huge investors and having all the challenges that go with that. So,
0: Now, did you have that mindset when you're sitting on the boards of the dot-com companies or is this post?
1: There were plenty of people pushing them to get more money and do more things. But I was always interested in what the CEO was thinking and kind of helping coach them and, and helping them sell. I sort of, I don't want to say look the other way, but I didn't have much to say about that. I listened and I always try to give my perspective, which is you're making money. You can afford for a lot to go wrong. If the investors get cold or I think, geez, what was it? That 2001.com bust or 2000.com bust. I mean, there's a lot of great businesses that went under because they just ran out of fuel. All right. So lesson for our audience, don't run out of money. Don't run out of money. It's really important. Yes.
0: With that, your company, it's come up with, and many of your companies, a new idea, Mm -hmm. novel idea. Yeah. Where is it that kind of worry of being first to market and that having a giant come in and just gobble you up or compete Mm -hmm. and take your idea and just, does that ever worry you?
1: It does now. It never did in the past because I always did things because I was interested in it, and I would also tell anybody who wanted to listen exactly what I was doing. (laughs) What I found out is most people don't work enough hours necessarily to make the changes that it would require, and I was always a little bit of a contrarian. Our business models always went into the face of what the average businessman was thinking. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot your question. (laughs) I get lost in my thoughts and going back in time. These are all great questions, but another question
0: for you, pretty heavily sales focused, people Mm -hmm. focused, relationship focused. How do you hire or train or know that salesperson that you're bringing on is going to have the skill set to take someone else's existing customer Mm -hmm. and bring them over to
1: your side? Well, obviously they got to have a lot of energy. They got to be money motivated and all that kind of stuff. But, Back to, you know, what I was saying about what I tell my sons, which is I look to see if they listen and if they can at least sort of assess a situation. I always say like you come in and you're looking at the walls of the business owner. You're seeing what pictures are on the wall. You're seeing what, they, what seems to be the stress of their day. And you're making an assessment as to whether what their fears and what their greed is going to be. And a sale happens when greed exceeds fear. And one foot on the gas, one foot on the brakes, you're trying to find that sweet spot where the owner is going to say, hey, I'll give it a shot. So I look for that, their ability to sort of see that. You can see it in golf or when I was younger, I would take them into the bar and see what girl or guy they would go after, that kind of thing, just to see what they were really like and what they're all about. And I think those things, and just to see if they liked the business or if they were just doing it for the money, but then you give them a short leash.
0: For right now... The company that you're with that, mm-hmm. that's in the newspaper growing, mm-hmm. what are we going to hear from your company in the next couple of years?
1: So Samuel Hale is, we have a parent company called Employee Insure. And so Employee Insure has a couple of different companies underneath it. And we build products with, I say, ties, technology, insurance, and employment services. And so all the companies are either technology related, insurance related, or like we have this new company coming out called EVOV. And Avuv is a marketplace for employees. It's kind of like a staffing company with no walls. Anybody can use it. Anybody can sell on it. Anybody can recruit on it. And all of the pricing's algorithmic. It's a really cool model. But at the end of the day, it was just another dress we put on the economic engine of Samuel Hale. We know what this thing can do financially. And so we were just trying find more ways to grow our risk profile there. One of the other things that were a trend that we're sort of seeing is we're going to probably develop a company that, for lack of a better word, is like employer for life. We, I went to a pension seminar. There was $5 trillion worth of money managers there, and they were talking about how difficult it is to invest for 20 years from now for people's pensions. And one of the things they said was, we have no idea what the employment relationship is going to look like 20 years from now. And one of the stats they threw out is more than 50% of the workforce are millennials. Millennials don't like to stay in their jobs for very long. So national average is two and a half years. So If you think about staffing agencies and HR departments, they don't pencil if you're changing jobs that quickly. So... I'm going to offer a service where anybody from any walk of life, any trade could come in and say, I want you to be my employer. This is the pension I want. This is the health care I want and so on. And we build them almost like a professional athlete. We build them permanent employment relationship and then we rent them out. And I say, change jobs as many times as you want instead of a bill rate or instead of a salary, we're going to give the employer a bill rate. Five years ago, I don't think that would have gone very far. Now, employers get it. They're like, hey, man, if I can come to your website, plug in some, some characteristics, I'm looking for an employee, see what you've got in the, I'm willing to pay more to get exactly what I want for the time period I want. And then, hey, if they want to move on, they can move on. So it kind of make HR departments obsolete and allow people to, I think, have a much more fulfilling career because, let's face it, people get tired of, of their jobs, right? And the other thing that really supports that is this flip-flop we have in the employer-employee relationship. For as long as I've been around, the boss had a job, they gave you a pay rate, and they talked about what you could wear to work when they didn't want to hear your personal situations. And if you had to take your kids to school because your wife had a doctor's appointment, they didn't want to hear it. Now, the opposite has happened. Instead of having 20 employees for every job, there's 20 jobs for every employee but there's no system out there that adjusts for that. There's no one that says, hey, employees, come here. I'll take care of you. And employers, you stand over there and stand in line and we'll let you know what you can pay and that kind of thing. So I see that as, a, as the future. And so we're building services and systems to accommodate for that. That's fascinating. I like that. I mean, yeah. you could be our first client. There you go. <laughs> you tell me what you want to do. We'll just, we'll figure out a pay rate for you and take care of it.
0: All right. After the episode, we'll start writing the, some things down. But there you uh, go. It's genius, actually. It yeah. makes sense. It really does. I mean, guys, I mean, you'll read articles of, the other day I read one, I forget what company they were at. One of the things I think of the HR person that got paid 190000 not to hire anyone for a year. Yeah. And you're like, why would, okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you another quick story that that sort of got me going on that. One of the recruiters that is in our network had a customer lose six pretty senior level people, 150 dollars to $200,000 type employees, and brought them all into the conference room and said, where are you going? I'll match your offer. And they all kind of looked at each other and said, we're not going to the same place. One of them was going to Europe for a couple months and they were just kind of burnt out after COVID. And so they said, there's nothing you can do. We're just not working here. So the recruiter, I think the fees were about $300,000 to replace those six employees. And the client came to the recruiter and said, the problem that I have is I don't know why those guys left. So I'm going to give you 300 grand. You're going to replace them. And how do I know that I'm not going to be giving you another 300 grand in six months to try and replace those folks? So that's where a lot of that idea came out of. It's like, well, what if you didn't have to pay 300? Maybe you paid a little bit more, but the employee was getting exactly what they wanted. And so the odds of them being dissatisfied and leaving, are you trying to figure out what they want? That, all that goes to the wayside.
0: Fantastic. And Michael, before wrapping up, is there any other advice or stories you want to leave our listeners? And with that, if there's any way for them to get in contact, learn more about you, what's the best way of going about doing
1: that? Sure. Well, my contact information, I can be reached at mike at samuelhale.com, S A M U E L H A L E.com. And phone number there is 916 235 1477. That'll get you through to my my voicemail. The advice that I would give is don't do it for the money. The money will come if you enjoy what you're doing and the market needs it. And just be open to criticism and be open to sharpening your idea a little bit. Don't fall in love with it to the point where you're not willing to compromise to make the business go forward
0: great advice, great advice. And with that, for our audience, one, I want to thank Angela again for making the introduction. Also, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm a mid-market investment banker, focused mergers, acquisition, and growth capital. Please reach out to me. You can find me on the thesiliconvalleypodcast.com or on LinkedIn. I'm here to have a conversation. And with that, I want to thank Michael one more time for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley
1: podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.